The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. It's uh, been a fraught Wednesday on markets across the globe. Big sell-offs happening. Worries about inflation, of course, front and centre of everything to do. Uh, Towards the end of last year, we had a very clear idea that American inflation was coming down and that would set the tone for the rest of the world. That unfortunately didn't play out as had been hoped and as a result of that, today we've seen the Bank of England with a 4% inflation rate and that scared everybody. I'll give you some more detail on that coming up in just a moment. Also this evening, we're going to be looking at other big stories, including um, uh, Maya Fisher-French, our shapeshifter. She's coming up at about half past seven this evening. I've known her for a long time. I was reflecting today, as my producer said. Unfortunately, our scheduled shapeshifter, Norman Dresselman of Retailability, who's based in KZN, has had his house flooded. The rains have been catastrophically awful. Many, many people affected, including tonight's scheduled shapeshifter but Maya Fisher French has agreed to step into the breach for us this evening and I was reflecting on how long I've known her um, that would give away her age and therefore I won't do that uh, so we'll chat to her later on we'll catch up this evening on what next for the monetary policy committee of the reserve bank uh, governors there are only four on the MPC now how does that get reconstituted touch base with Davos we'll um, reflect a little on the lessons learned from the still to be resolved Tabilioka saga I see some certificates that have been published online that carry <laughs> the wrong name the name that she gave us to double check that she had her degree is not the name on a certificate I've seen circulating on the internet today somebody I spoke to earlier said oh it looks like it's been constructed by one of those Nigerian princes unfortunately there's going to be a huge amount of misinformation around this and we're doing our best to keep it factual Uh, that's what we're up to tonight on The Money Show, welcome to the show The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702 702 So everything very firmly back in the air as we consider how 2024 might play out in terms of the global cost of living crisis, markets, investments. It's all hinging on inflation. Inflation which looked like it was under control in the fourth quarter of last year, not being contained as had been expected. Uh, A new factor emerging, something we flagged as a signal last year, and that is disruption to shipping in the Red Sea. Now, shipping costs are skyrocketing once again as a result of geopolitical tensions. Over the past six weeks, we've seen freight rates up 120%. Much of this has got to do with the recent attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. Geopolitics, of course, is a big factor that continues to drive commodity prices as well and also disrupt supply chains. The last time we saw such a quick surge in an uptick in freight rates was during the pandemic where there was a more than 150% jump. And it means that interest rates do not get cut as quickly as we would have hoped at the end of 2023 and 2024 could be tougher than we expected. Our own Reserve Bank Governor said as much in Davos yesterday. Christine Lagarde, uh, Christine Lagarde at the European Central Bank 
has said similar things about the Eurozone. No rush to cut interest rates. And today, the United Kingdom reporting a surprise jump to 4% in terms of inflation. Again, that dampens the hope of interest rate cuts in that economy anytime soon. Coupled with this, we're beginning to see wage growth in the most developed economies slowing. Uh, we're also seeing a big impact on share prices and uh, uh, and also on currencies almost everywhere. Um, and so in contrast, it's quite weird today to see that authorities in China uh, say that their economy grew by more than expected last year. 5.2 is ex- opposed to an expectation of 5%. Now, there are some serious underlying issues in the uh, in the Chinese economy. The Chinese Premier Li Kuang uh, giving the clearest signal yet that they're not ready in Davos. He spoke. He was speaking in Davos to do any big stimulus to drive growth because they say growth is good enough. So there are a whole bunch of things going, not many of them, unfortunately, going right. The big impact is on our currency. Reno Negrini is a foreign exchange structurer at RMB. Lots of things moving really, really quickly at the moment, Reno, in terms of the currency in particular. Um, the, the, the sell-off has been fairly dramatic of emerging market currencies, particularly if we focus on the RAND. Certainly right. I mean, we've seen a storm of 1920, uh, just short, just before it's this afternoon. It raised a big turn. We've, we've seen the RAND trade in about 10 cent ranges. Rainer, I'm going to ask you to hold for a second, please. The cell phone signal um, is unacceptable. So let's just get you on a better phone line if we can, uh, because it's really important that we get to hear each and every single word. Producers, drop that line. Get a new line. Get it nice and fresh and squeaky clean. Yeah, just to give you a picture of the currency, because... It's uh, been a sharp and and fairly rapid sell-off. We were sort of heading towards 21 in the last quarter of last year to the pound, for example. Uh, and now we're north of 24 to the pound. Um, the deterioration has been significant. 1912 to the dollar this evening, the euro at 2076 and 2421 against the pound tonight um being made worse by of course this apparent fl- flight to the least dangerous parts of the world of markets at the moment. And those, uh, that's what we're looking at. So Reno Negrini is with us this evening. Sorry, Reno, we just couldn't hear you at all a moment ago. Give us a perspective on the currency, please. I'm so sorry. Hopefully you can hear me now. Perfect. Great stuff. Um, yeah, look, the RAND has really spiked up today, and it, it almost started yesterday already. And it's quite concerning when you've almost been sitting for the first two weeks of the year in almost a 10-cent range, really hardly moving here and all there. And then you shoot up, and I think you've set the tone quite nicely to say that um, high inflation and reserve banks kind of saying rates are going to be higher for longer really seems to be the story that everyone is almost sticking to. If you look at what the um, the dot charts are saying for Fed interest cuts and um, SARP cuts, and I mean our own reserve bank governor said that he doesn't see us cutting as soon as we, we probably would have liked, it puts a lot of pressure on the currency and, and puts a lot of um, pressure on global economy and growth as a whole. And I think that's really what spurred this kind of risk-off move and and the surge of the dollar that we've seen over the last two days. Yeah, and it is all about the dollar, isn't it? I mean, it's about this apparent flight to safety. Suddenly the world is less certain. Suddenly the world is less 
clear. It's never clear, but we believe it's clear in brief in brief spells. And suddenly people are going, well, I'm not willing to hang around on the periphery of the market. Let me go straight back to the middle um, where I can trust the dollar, I can trust the U.S. economy, and I can hide there until I see opportunity emerge again. 100%. And you've seen it in the um, in U.S. Treasury yields. They've picked up again nicely. So it's really just... I think everyone just being a little bit cautious ahead of our next kind of data releases and so on, and almost just re- kind of digesting what's been said in Davos over the last few days. Yeah. But what, what, what is the outlook then? I mean, is it, is it one of these brief flurries of panic that we see at the moment? Uh, or is there something more ominous building here? I think... When you kind of enter a year with a lot of uh, a lot of elections going on, we've got SA elections. You've got the US, the U.S. elections late in the year. I think there's a total of 72 elections taking uh, place this year, local and or, and national as well. So when you got that type of noise into the picture as well, compound that with when are reserve banks going to be cutting rates? It leaves a lot of uncertainty for currencies. If the reserve bank cuts a lot quicker than us then that puts us in a little bit of a, um, a good spot. But if we kind of cut and, and do things a lot sooner than them, because maybe our inflation comes under control and they're not doing it as quick as us, then we could see this rand kind of going further on. So it's really all about timing on when these reserve banks kind of marry and, and get together and decide to do these cuts. We, our initial or RMB's initial forecast was our first rate cut would be in July. Um, potentially based on new information if we see how this inflation um, plays out, based on, as you said, um, what's happening in the Middle East and rising shipping costs, etc., maybe inflation doesn't come off as quickly as we like and we don't cut in July. Maybe it's pushed out a, little, pushed out a few months. Yeah, and that's, and that's, I suppose, the, the fear that is being reflected in markets at the moment, that the real concern about inve- about the way in which the inflation outlook is going to evolve and is going to develop. And it's a, it's a real concern, isn't it? And it, 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 it just, you know, for all of our hopes that inflation was going to be tamed in 2024, suddenly geopolitics rears its head again. We've got two big wars happening, lots of different elections happening around the world this year, lots of uncertainty, uh, the, the noise levels rising again uh, to a crescendo. Hundred percent. And when you've got all these things, it really, it really doesn't bode well for us. And maybe it starts the year jitters and panics and so on. Once we wait for that, I mean, everyone's just come off from holiday. Everyone drank the Kool Aid over December. Everyone's feeling light and fluffy, and and kind of now you come back to all this news, and you need to realize, oh wait, hang on a second. Let's just take a step back, reassess, and have a look on and have a look at what's going on. And when people do that, that's flight to the safe haven to be like, you know what? Let's just be safe for now until I can get a better picture and understand what's going on, and then I can make my decision from there. And I think that's why we've seen the spike so quick over yesterday and today. Uh, Rainer, thank you very much indeed. Rainer Negrini is a foreign exchange structurer at RMB tonight. Thank you for that. Yeah, it is all about the Fed. It's all about inflation. It's all about interest rates. It's the world's longest-running boring story, Um, and uh, it's the world's most important story, too. Reno, thank you for bringing some clarity to the Merck. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's agricultural sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. 
how many members of the Monetary Policy Committee does it take to set interest rates? I'm not setting up a joke here. It's a genuine question. I don't know the answer um, because there are now just four members of the Monetary Policy Committee left. That's after the resignation and departure of one of the deputy governors, and that was Kuben Naidu, who last year informed the president that he was keen for uh, to, to step away from his duties at the Reserve Bank. No word on a replacement deputy. Also rumblings, of course, as to who will replace the governor himself, Lesitja Khanyaho. His second five-year term ends in November this year. Hilary Joffe is columnist and editor-at-large at Business Day. Let's focus in on the MPC uh, very briefly here. Hilary, why is it so difficult to find new members of the MPC, which at one point was quite a lot bigger than its current four? Actually, Bruce, um, I had forgotten this, but I was looking into some of the history. And when Tito Mboweni first established the Monetary Committee way back 20 years ago at the start of inflation targeting, uh, apparently he had 15 members who included the bank's human resources chief and various other uh, fairly what we would now regard as irrelevant additions. And he later trimmed it down. Um, and I think there is globally, you know, this, the Fed is, is 12 voting members. Um, we're down to four. Our terms of reference, which are internal to the bank, allow for um, a committee which could be as large as eight people. Um, the governor and his or her three deputy governors are ex officio on the Monetary Policy Committee, plus the governor can invite up to four more members who are on the bank's staff to join the committee. So uh, we did for quite a time have a seven-member committee, but in the recent past, it's been five, and now, of course, we're down to four, which has, it isn't a train smash, especially at the moment when the decisions don't seem to be very difficult to kind of call, but um, it does have some risks. Uh, most certainly does. Uh, when it comes down to, uh, and again, the MPC votes as to which way infl- in- interest rates should go, if it comes down to an even split, the governor has the last word, and the governor has already told us what he thinks should happen with interest rates, and that it should not be cut any time soon. So therefore, um, if there is any indecision within the MPC or a, a lack of decision, um, then the governor will, will put his stamp on it. And it's interesting that there is no sort of apparent plan. Is there a plan? Is there a shortlist? Are people being interviewed? Is somebody going to fill the shoes of Kuben Naidu just to, to bring the balance back? Because you lose another member of the MPC, hypothetically, um, and then things start to look a little bit thin on the ground. Look, any even number on the committee is going to give the governor a casting vote. And, and I think that's why the committee and the governor prefer not to have an even number because it gives him or her undue influence, if you like. And, and it sort of outs them. It outs them um, in a way that, you know, it's less visible who voted what um, when there are more of them and when it's not an even number. So... Um, the, the absolute number matters a little bit and whether it's odd or even does also matter a little bit. The question of who's going to be on the committee, um, yeah, and keep in mind, Bruce, it's not just Kubernetes post that up, but it's the entire governor and deputy governor layer, which is up for either renewal or replacement in the coming few months. So it's quite okay. a scary time.
Again, you say it's scary. Why should it be scary? It shouldn't be scary. It should be certain. It should be calm. It should be considered. It should be sending a very clear signal that the Reserve Bank is independent and um, the, the, the strength and stability of the central bank is the one thing that has kept South Africa teetering over the economic abyss. Um, all of those good things that you and I know about and our listeners this evening will be perfectly cognizant of that don't seem to be appreciated with the same level of intensity within official circles that make the decisions about who should be um, running the the very important central bank. Correct, Bruce. And I would hope that our political leadership, whoever they are, would take very seriously the credibility of the central bank and the need to appoint competent people of utmost integrity to those positions. But you never know what happens in politics, and especially in a year like this when the politics is very contested and we could see some kind of coalition outcomes which will involve various trade-offs being made. Um, and one of the issues is that there's not, there's not a process, a, a sort of transparent process for appointing governors and deputy governors, nor are there actually, nor is there a set of criteria. The governor has to be a person of tested banking experience, but there are no criteria for the others. And the president appoints it's his prerogative. Um, he has to consult the Minister of Finance and the Reserve Bank's board, but he doesn't have to listen to what they say. So I do actually think that we could do with the country with some sort of criteria and process for for the selecting of governors, because certainly until now, some really fantastic people have been appointed, and thank goodness for the country for that. And we certainly hope that will continue, but I don't think we can rely on it. And, and there's not nearly enough institutional safeguard against poor appointments. Critical. Thank you very much, Hilary Joffe, for waving that flag for us this evening. It's something else to worry about tonight here on The Money Show. Hilary Joffe, concerns around concerns around the uh, the structure of the Reserve Bank and its management and we need answers quickly as to how this vital institution is going to be managed into the future. I'm not sure that the deputies as they sit at the moment are 100% ready to take over. Are you ever ready to take over a job like that? I don't know. Certainly we need somebody with experience at the helm of the Reserve Bank as Sitchikhan Yahoo comes to his at uh, the end of his second term. Could we suggest that his second term be extended so that one of his deputies, as identified, um, could be fast-tracked to take over the role? Lizzie Dachanyaho's great strength has been his no-bulldust approach. It really has been, um, as was the strength of Jill Marcus before him, as was the strength of Tito Boweni before him, as, I think, was the strength of Kristals. Independence, absolutely pivotal in that job. The Money Show. The Markets. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91. No corporate news to talk of, but we don't need corporate news on a day where all bets are off on stock markets, not only here, but in the United States and across Europe as well, as fear stalks the corridors of stock exchanges everywhere once again, Chris Stewart. Were, I you know, we were getting all the 2024 jam a little bit early. You, you were away, but you're with us again. This is lovely. So begin again. Begin again. Where again. were you? 
No, I, I think all of all of the good news that uh, the 2024 may have had in store was already discounted in the latter parts of 2023, where we saw quite a strong rally uh, in risk markets. And uh, that's all unfolding quite dramatically uh, in the first few trading sessions of 2024. Uh, we see the local market down nearly 7%. Uh, already this year, we're seeing uh, equity markets across the board globally uh, tracking down uh, not quite that much, but quite significantly. And I think the overriding theme is that the market's probably got a little bit ahead of itself in terms of expecting uh, interest rates to fall, uh, the timing of interest rates coming off, uh, the extent to which interest rates will be cut this year. We've seen a few uh, slightly uh, less benign inflation prints coming through, the latest being in the UK today, and a reiteration of a fairly uh, disappointing uh, European inflation print. We saw a disappointing inflation print coming out of the US. Uh, we've seen central bankers across the world, across the world, I beg your pardon, uh, growling a little bit uh, and, and, and you know, telling the market not to expect too much by way of rate cuts uh, until inflation looks like it's well under control, and certainly not to expect inflation rate cuts uh, to come through as as uh, rapidly as perhaps the market had been discounted. And risk assets responding fairly badly to that, Bruce. Yeah, I mean, I've, I see this as a short-term anomaly. These things, these ebb and flows happen until we get a data point that the market can attach itself to, even no matter how tenuous. They're just looking for a little bit of positivity, just a little bit of a glimmer of hope in the markets, which at the moment, unfortunately, is in short supply. Yeah, we, we need to tread that tightrope of, of getting good news in terms of uh, chaps, you can expect rate cuts to come through reasonably significantly and reasonably soon. Uh, which theoretically will get risk assets going. But at the same time, we don't want that news to be coming through uh, because data prints are, and, you know, economic, economic data prints are coming through so weak uh, that these rate cuts are being done in an emergency fashion to try and uh, prevent, uh, you know, recessionary conditions across the globe. So it's, it's kind of we want to see inflation moderating, but we want to see, and, and as a consequence of that, uh, we want to see interest rates coming back down uh, but we want that to be happening in an environment where growth isn't falling off a cliff. Exactly right. Do we see any rate cuts in the first half of this year anywhere significant? I know lots of small economies are talking about rate cuts, but um, significant economies, I'm wondering whether we will see them before the second half of this year. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's still a, if I stand corrected, I, I think the market's still discounting an 80% chance of the first cut coming out in the US in March. That's certainly down from where it was last week. Uh, I think that probability is going to continue to fall. Uh, we may see rate cuts coming through around uh, mid-year in some of the major economies if we can indeed uh, see the inflation data uh, behaving itself. Uh, but I think you're right. I think the general can, the general trend or the general uh, view in the market that it started to emerge in the latter parts of last year that we were going to see rate cuts as early as the first quarter of 2024 are probably now being pushed out to mid uh, to just after mid 2024. I don't think we'll see rate cuts here in our market, for example, uh, in all likelihood uh, until uh, probably July, I would guess. Chris Stewart is a good guess. Thank you. Chris Stewart is a portfolio manager at 91, bringing us to just past half past six. And this Eyewitness News brought to you by Khalix Khalix for the businessman who knows what he wants. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. 
We'll get to the World Economic Forum in just a bit. We need to touch base as to what is happening on the snowy slopes of Davos. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the ABSA Insights Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Well, on your next Money Show, Warren Ingram, the co-founder at Galileo Capital. He is a certified financial planner on balance in your portfolio, why it matters, particularly when things are going awry as they are at the moment. Chief Executive at Auric Business Accelerator, Pablo Fertides, on navigating your small business and, of course, the biggest money stories of the day and a little insight from the World Economic Forum. All of that. Fruit salad on the next Money Show. Bruce Whitfield on the Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Welcome to the show this evening. We'll touch base with Bornang Mohale in a moment, President at Business Unity South Africa. Uh, World Economic Forum, and it's all going down in Davos, of course, at the World Economic Forum. He is the chairman of Bidvest, and that's the hat he's wearing there um, at the moment. Bornang, welcome to The Money Show this evening. In business and in life, I suppose, and you'll know this, Bornang, it's better to be inside the room than outside the room. It's better to be part of the conversation than have people talk about you when you're not there, or worse, not talk about you at all, I suppose. And I guess that's why you're there. That's why Team South Africa is there. Absolutely correct, Bruce, my dear brother. I'm missing you hugely because I always look forward to incisive commentary whenever you are here. But for me, Bruce, the miracle of Davos is the first fact that this being my 21st worth in Davos, I've really had the privilege of witnessing how a small town became a powerhouse for economic transformation and how the dream of just one man, Professor Klaus Schwab, a German-born engineer and economist who simply wanted participants to be able to escape from the everyday hustle and bustle of life, has succeeded in placing Davos firmly as the center of the world. This small town in the canton of Graubünden in Switzerland, is now renowned far beyond its geographical size. So hosting the West in Davos brings with it, of course, a complex interplay of economic and environmental impacts that significantly affect the local community. But here's the thing. The global exposure Davos receives from hosting such a truly prestigious event for me, enhances its profile as a destination, potentially attracting more tourists and investors year-round, not just in general. So economically, this event has the flywheel phenomenon as the influx of visitors boosts revenue for tourism and hospitality. Here I'm talking about simple things like hotels, restaurants, downstream businesses, securities, chauffeur services, cleaners, farmers that grow the food we eat, clothing that we are gifted with, souvenirs that we buy. The possibilities are truly endless and mind-blowing, especially for us African leaders and indeed the role that business can play. Bruce? 
It's so important, Bonang, isn't it? I mean, it is the week, of course, where hundreds of decision makers gather in Davos at the 2024 World Economic Forum gathering. The World Economic Forum, independent international organization committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic and other leaders of society to shape global and regional industry agendas. We are talking to Bonang Mohale at the World Economic Forum gathering in Davos. What has blown your mind this year, Bonang? You've been there many, many times in the past. What is it? that is really getting you thinking differently not only about yourself not only about Bidvest and uh, your part in the world but South Africa's part in the world that number one this year's Davos is about 10% bigger than the same period last year that it is struggling like most countries with issues so to be in the presence of the top 1% of the richest people in the world. Bruce, you know, out of the top 10 countries, uh, out of the top 10 companies in the world, seven of them have just five shareholders that are here with me right now. So 2,800 leaders, 60 heads of state, 40 foreign ministers, more than 350 government, central bank governors, and public servants, alongside 1,600 business leaders, academics, civil society, youth, and foundations from 120 countries who are convening of, on this, the 54th annual WEF meeting, and it's cynic, as you know, Alpine Village of Davos Cloisters. But for me, this meeting takes place against the most complicated geopolitical and geoeconomic backdrop of the last few decades. If you thought we have problems in the wake of what we are facing, load shedding, water shedding, because electricity is a fourth means of production. We're not alone. We're simply sending a message that says South Africa is open for business in spite of the self-inflicted harm um, that we have brought to ourselves, Bruce. Uh, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, yes, our problems are self-inflicted. Our problems are our problems, and we have not resolved them. We've not dealt with them. We've been very, very poor in living up to the promises of Davos's past. But you get to a place like the World Economic Forum, where I've also been privileged enough to go a couple of times, and you get a very clear sense that, yes, while our problems are our problems, the world's problems are deep, dark, and significant. I mean, a war in Europe, a war in the Middle East, the issues of inflation, the issues of interest rates, the issues of slowing economies, the issues of disgruntled populations um, are are very real in, I think, virtually every part of the world, even in the United States, which is supposed to be this wonderful egalitarian democracy. You know, Bruce, you have hit the nail on the head as you always do. But the theme says it all. Rebuilding trust. It simply says there was trust, we lost it, now we need to rebuild it. In our future, by moving beyond crisis management, looking at the root causes of the present problems and building together a more promising future to contribute to progress. And the four tracks, one is achieving security and cooperation, two, the fracture of course in a fractured world but creating growth and jobs that sounds like South Africa in a new era three, artificial intelligence as a driving force for the economy and society, that's what we forget and then last of course 
can we together build a long-term strategy for climate, nature, and energy? So South Africa is well represented, my dear brother. And honestly, the current challenges um, notwithstanding, the, the magic is we now have an opportunity as the 60.02 million South Africans this year. It gives us an opportunity to vote for a political party or individual for the first time that is committed yeah. to no more than five things. Number one is transformation. We must call it what it is, whether people like it or not. Two is ethical leadership. Three is good governance. Four is service delivery. I mean, that's the job description of a politician. And then lastly, of course, is law and order, safety and security. Because without that, who are we and what are we, Bruce? Bonang Mohale, thank you very much indeed, the chairman of Bidvest, Bonang Mohale. Um, I, okay, let me talk to Acha Leke this evening. Acha is, of course, the chairman for McKinsey and Company in Africa. Let's talk to him very briefly this evening, producers, because we are running out of time. Um, Acha, w- w- welcome to The Money Show this evening. This idea of public-private partnerships is an idea that we treat as a new one. Okay, it's disappeared. Don't worry about it. Let's try and use them on a different day. Uh, the phone lines are not being very kind to us. A deep insight in a moment into the Tabalioka story. I want to go back there because I think it's important. I think there's a lot we can learn. Uh, the Institute of Directors today say the companies need to be a bit more circumspect, a bit more thorough. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Of course they do. Talk about stating the bleeding obvious. Uh, but how long have we known about this? How long have we known about these issues? And what should we have known, I think, is important. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. 7.02. Bruce is on The Money Show. So it's been an interesting 24 hours and I've been doing my checks today into the awful Tabilioka saga. Tabilioka accused of uh, falsely claiming to have a PhD from the London School of Economics. If you're going to get a PhD in economics, there are few better places on earth to get it from than the LSE, which would give you a great global qualification. It would make you incredibly relevant. It would make you incredibly attractive to employers. It would make you incredibly uh, important in the world. It would bring the attention of the presidency to you. You might even get a gig at the presidency. Um, and unfortunately for Tabilioka, she's had questions asked of her which she has not been able to satisfactorily answer. There's a huge rumor mill um, happening in the background of this story and we're trying to get clarity. There was even a, a certificate published online today and I've looked at it and it looks fake. Um, Claude de Bizac is the chief executive of Unomics Group. Now, Claude, I don't know if you've got a direct interest in the story, but you've WhatsApped me a little earlier to say that you've been aware of the rumor mills around Tabalioka for some time. So you did some amateur sleuthing of your own because this uh, trying to get a PhD is, is not foreign to you, as I understand it. That's right. Good to be back. And I just wanted to say hi to Bonang. Uh, funny, him and I were chatting earlier today. And, okay, uh, and he's also gone. He's long the gone. Bonang, he's Bonang. gone. I know. He's gone. Bonang is gone. Okay. Anyway, yeah, what is it? You know, it, so yes, um, end of November, I get a phone call from someone who says to me, hey, you won't believe this. I just had a chat with someone at this institution and... Tabileoka, and that person doesn't finish the sentence. I finish the sentence for that person, and I say, doesn't have a PhD. And the person says to me, how do you know? I said, I guessed it. 
because I, I've never seen sign of a doctoral dissertation. I never came across any published academic research in peer-reviewed journals. I was never able to engage on a one-on-one -on -one conversation about policy in a substantive way. And the point is obviously that um, as someone who chose me not to finish my PhD um, from a university, um, and I chose because I, I had a job offer and I didn't want to be a, a lecturer at a university, I, I respect the meaning and the integrity of that extremely uh, prestigious title, particularly from a university like London School of Economics, from where my doctoral advisor was, for instance. So I have what is called an ABD PhD, all but dissertation. So I took the coursework, I took the exams, I passed the exams with distinction, my university, Northern Arizona University. Uh, it's not a particularly prestigious university. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't feel like I needed to finish it to do what I needed to do. So okay. But, but talk, to about Tabilioka and, well, talk to me about Tabilioka and, and the alarm bells that should have been seen far sooner than they appear to have been seen. So the interesting thing about the story for me is that once I learned about it, I made some phone calls to people who should have cared about it and didn't seem to care about it. And I spoke to other people who said, whoa, you know, Claude, you don't want to go there, right? Optics, right? Perspective. And, and I said to, to these people, I said then, I said, this is pissing me off big time. A, it's not a matter of optics, it's a matter of facts. Either she has a PhD in economics from London School of Economics, or she doesn't. It's not Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's PhD that, you know, appears and disappears why, according to whether why, you look at the degree or not. Why does it matter, Claude? Why is it something that has got... I mean, I'm, I've got a very clear view as to why I'm upset. If this is proven to be true that she does not have the PhD, I'm very annoyed. But why is it important that credentials are treated with honour and respect? Well, I mean, because the, fa the, fa the fact that she, she would be, I mean, you know, we don't know yet whether she has a PhD or not. She has failed to provide the proof that she has one, okay? And when today, again, I went back on the website of LSE and I looked at the history of PhD dissertations there that are filed. It's online, it's available, and I don't come across her name. And the argument that it's because she changed her first name is invalid because doctoral dissertations, like articles in academic newspapers, are published on a last name basis, right? So you go there, there is no evidence of this. It the matters. Last name, the last it name matters. that you gave us, Claude, the, the last name, yeah. what, why I know that the certificate that has been circulating online today is fake is because yeah. the name on that certificate is not the name that she gave us in terms of please check my name. The fact that that name that she gave us also is not traceable on the London School of Economics um, yeah. uh, system is concerning because it, it yes, then it again... Yeah. creates inconsistency in the story that she well, has doubled down Yeah, on. Bruce. I mean, it's not difficult, right? You either have a PhD or you don't. And if you have a PhD, you have a PhD certificate and you have your doctoral dissertation. You don't lose the doctoral dissertation. It's like your 
as you said, your passport to success. It's your, it's your bragging right. It's the sweat, blood and tears that you put in, you know, in, in doing this. I, I, I was 12 years in academia, okay? It, it means that for 12 years I was poor. I was broke. I was, I was surviving. And, and if, if you want to call yourself a doctor, get the PhD. And why does it matter? Not just for that, but will you go to see a, 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 a surgeon who doesn't have a PhD in medical <laughs> science? No. Will you ask as president of South Africa to have a, a senior advisor who claims to have a PhD in economics in a country that is experiencing yeah. the crisis that my friend Bernang was talking about? This is real. People's lives Lord? are at stake. Claude, thank you very much indeed. We need to go to Eyewitness News. Claude de Bizac, who is the chief executive at Unomics Group. Um, so has some deep insight into the origins of the story. I will catch up tomorrow on The Money Show with Jennifer Barkhazen, who uh, talks about evaluations, generally speaking. And it's why your company needs to be blooming careful at this. I'm very disappointed that MTN has not either come out in support of and said, look, we've got the PhD here, mystery solved, or Anglo-American Platinum, the PhD mystery solved. They've also not issued any statements to say that she doesn't have the PhD and that she is or isn't on their boards of directors anymore. Um, and so, again, their silence is deafening in this particular matter. And I desperately want her to be shown to be innocent. I honestly do, um, because she's a nice person. Is she a nice person who's made a terrible mistake? Is she a nice person who's committed a fraud? Is she a nice person who's committed perjury, as some reports suggest today, lying under oath about a PhD? I want to get to the bottom of this faster than we possibly, you know, than, than is humanly possible. We will keep on the story as grubby and awful as it is. It's Eyewitness News Time. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered... FSP. We're going to do our regular business unusual feature this evening. Also tonight, uh, we have got Wendy Nola, who is concerned about some information she's got out of the pet insurance industry. If you've got a pet and you don't have pet insurance and you want the very best care for your pet, as I discovered to my cost... (laughs) Uh, early on in having a new pet, uh, you very quickly get insurance. And then you never use it because the animal goes, oh, now you have insurance. I'm fine, actually. Woof, woof. And uh, you find that you never use it. And it's the best kind of insurance, frankly, because you only ever use insurance when you are in trouble. Uh, and so the, the privilege of not having trouble is the privilege of never claiming against your insurance. And then you think, well, that was money wasted. But until you've been caught short without insurance on whatever it is, your car, your home, or in this case, a family pet, you don't want to be in that position. But they've got to pay by the rules. They've got to play decently. They've got to uh, play honorably. And Wendy Nola has a story of deep, dark, deceitful dishonor which is where, hey, she specializes. Uh, Also this evening, uh, we have got for you our shapeshifter, and that is Maya Fisher-French. She will join us this evening here on The Money Show. The Money Show. Business Unusual. 
We are talking about workforces and a more empowered and informed workforce. A workforce that is able to think more for itself and not rely on a top-down level of interference, intervention and management constantly. And that's exhausting as a manager, I think. Um, the business in Europe is brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank is built for your business. And Jabuz Wane this evening is the Mindset Development Specialist. First time I've spoken to somebody with that title. Um, what is this concept of a more informed workforce? Not a more skilled, not a more capable, not a more useful workforce, but a more informed workforce, Jabul. Good evening, Bruce. Thank you, Thank you for uh, thank you for letting me on, come on the show. Sorry, <laughs> um, a more informed workforce is basically what we're facing at the moment. The fact that uh, pretty much every individual on the planet has access to information at the tip of their fingers. So it's not it's not like before where we had to wait for the people who know to tell us what is what's happening, what's good, what's not. We are able to immediately verify and check whether or not what you're telling us is valid or not. And I think it's something that has uh, obviously filtered into workspaces. And I think when we're working with people that have that kind of power at the tip of their hands, it's important to also adjust our leadership styles. Okay, so you've got a workforce that is more connected than ever before. It is also connected in the world of misinformation. It is actually often quite disconnected from reality. It is a, a more opinionated workforce rather than a more informed workforce, or am I being too cynical on this one? I think, I mean, it's, it's valid cynicism, but also the uh, there's also another part of that. As much as there is misinformation and disinformation online, there are also valid um, platforms and factors online. And so what that basically means is that uh, it's like basically back in the day where we could, would ask our parents certain information about where do babies come from and then they'd give us a story. But today we are able to check whether or not it's really a valid story. As much as there's validity to that cynicism, I've, I've never checked also validity actually. So to is, is the story about the stork not true? <laughs> Don't suggest that for me, Jabal. Don't suggest that for me for a moment. <laughs> but, 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 and I think it means that the world, workforce is considerably more complex and more complicated to manage. But I wonder if a wiser workforce, a more connected workforce, is not a better workforce, a workforce where actually uh, management can do more of a light touch rather than the old-fashioned, top-down, draconian, army-style command and control leadership. If you've got a, a more informed workforce, yeah, it becomes a bit tricky because people start thinking for more for themselves, but actually it's quite invigorating in some respects, in all respects, I hope. Absolutely. I mean, I was quick to share with you what my mentor said to me once about uh, when I was still about 21. He said to me, this is a great leader starts working themselves out of a job from day one. And that is the ultimate success of a leader is that by the time that you are done, you should be able to go on vacation and come back. Actually, the sales force or whatever you're leading, having done a far better job than actually when you were around. And if you think about it this way, Chet GPT just released, um, I think it's Chet, it's Chet office where today literally workforces are able to create their own Chet GPT specifically in line with the work that they do. HR can come up with their own Chet GPT that can answer questions in the absence of a manager or in the absence of a clarity even about the policy, for example. And that's what I mean by the fact that 
we have an empowered workforce that's able to do a lot more than we can without our our interference or micromanagement. I, I agree. And so where you've got these people who are better educated than previous generations, we've got these people who are better informed than previous generations, you've got these people who are hopefully more adaptable and more globally aware, that becomes a useful asset. Do you find mm-hmm. that a lot of managers are intimidated by this workforce and go, oh, hold on a second, I'm supposed to be in charge. I'm supposed to know everything. I can't possibly know everything, but they know I don't know everything, and that undermines me. That makes me weak. That makes me feel vulnerable, and they don't like that. I think there's a lot of that actually still happening in the workforce today. I think one of the reasons why most people actually end up leaving, especially those ones that are that understand the access they've got to uh, live information that can be helpful in the moment, that's part of the reason why they leave work. They leave work because of managers. Leaders have not adapted to that reality that uh, they need to not to let go of the idea that I have to know everything because I'm the manager, but actually become more facilitators of knowledge, facilitators of skills, and create an environment for innovation, for creativity, and for people to excel at what they're good at. And that being a leader doesn't mean that you've got to treat at every single aspect of the work. An important part of that is that you are able to allow those who can do exceedingly abundantly more than that you can to do what exactly that. And unfortunately, what you've noted there, insecurity can stand square in the way of that. And either you as a leader adapt to that environment, you adapt to the position where you're employing smart people and you must allow smart people to do their work. I think it's the Steve Jobs quote who says, you know, I hire smart people. If I start telling them what to do, why did I hire smart people in the first place? You can hire do as they're told. Um, if you hire smart people, they must get on with the job. That's why you pay them what you pay them. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Even um, Richard Branson had the same, I think he's got the same philosophy, him being dyslexic and all. He realized very quickly that uh, it's the, the job is to hire people who are far more capable than you. And your most important and crucial skill as a leader, as I've said, is to learn those facilitation skills, is to learn encouragement, is learn to motivation, it's to learn a lot of um, those human interactions, those touch points, because ultimately that's what uh, that's what is required. If you take on the burden of having to know all that there is to know about the I mean, it'll take you a lifetime. And unfortunately, it's going to make you feel very stressed out. And then, of course, you're going to pass on that stress to the workforce as well. And we don't want that. Exactly. And you then just become the boss everyone hates. How do leaders then adapt to this environment? How can you unlearn your learned behaviors in a way that makes you better at managing this very different workforce to the workforce that your parents might have had to manage? The first thing, Bruce, with a great question is that you've got to embrace transparency. And transparency is about acknowledging the areas in your own technical skills that are, that are, that are lacking. So it's, it's important to accept and, and, and where you are at and then be able to come up with a second thing, um, investing in your own leadership development once you've identified what those gaps are. It's also crucial that you decentralize decision-making to empower your teams to own work and solve problems independently. It's also crucial that you you also um, embrace the fast-changing developments in the AI and technology space. 
Oh. Uh, I'm Load. struggling to hear. There, oh, there you are. So you oh. you vanished for a while. You vanished for a while. I'm sure everybody else heard you, Jabu. Uh, but the, the sense is, as leaders, you've got to keep on learning. If you're not keeping on learning and the environment around you is changing, you want to become the dinosaur, right? Absolutely. You don't. You honestly don't want to be the dinosaur. And I think that's a very crucial word you've mentioned about unlearning and learning and relearning. I mean, that's that's a, that's an ongoing process if you're going to adapt to the ever fast changing environment. And that also includes the, those who are that you are leading. Not everybody's sitting around waiting to take a cue from you as to what they need to learn or what to do next. Quite a lot of people are taking the initiative, especially post COVID nineteen, realizing that. Um, not everybody is a, who's a scientist is a scientist, and quite a lot of people in authority don't know what they thought they say they know. A lot of the populace have taken getting to know and finding information into their hands, and so you don't want to be us in the room. That's not a good look for you, as a leader. <laughs> Job was wanted. Thank you. He's a mindset development specialist. He speaks about the stuff in public. He stands on stages and helps companies adapt their modus operandi, the way they think, the way they lead, and help teams also become more effective at the job of work. Coming up in a moment, Wendy Nola. Wendy is our consumer ninja. Wendy joins us on a Wednesday evening, and Wendy keeps us up to speed with what is happening in the world of consumer protection and the world of consumer rights and uh, tonight it's a really important one it's a really interesting one and it's all about the world of pet insurance and something uncomfortable which she has uncovered wendy nola coming up next the money show consumer ninja consumer ninja wendy nola now um, a preamble to this is Dotsure, which is one of the pet insurance companies, has been ordered by the Advertising Regulatory Board to pull its TV ad for pet insurance, which depicts a family talking about their dog, which was shot during an armed robbery at their home. Now, the Advertising Regulatory Board said it was unsuitable for young children and played to the fears of adults. Now, this is weird, Wendy Nola, because unfortunately... This is the lived reality of far too many South Africans, the threat of domestic violence um, perpetuated by outsiders in the home and doing it violently is is very real. It is. And the insurer pointed out that, um, you know, it had a happy ending and, uh, you know, why not depict it? The, the dog was, it was a true story. It was covered in the news. Um, it went to protect the, the, the child. It was a family of four, mom, dad, and two, two kids. And um, it was shot in the face. Um, bullet went in one part, out the other, and um, it ended up surviving. But the, the reason two people complained uh, Lodger complained to the Advertising Regulatory Board was that they said it was just really, really graphic that you could hear, they have the, the, the story being told and you hear the gunshot and you hear a dog yelping, which is, you know, very triggering, um, especially for young children. Um, the, the point that was made by the directorate was that many South African parents would take steps to shield their children, the younger children, from you know hearing that story in such a graphic way. They might choose to tell the story in a vague way, sparing them that that grittiness. Um, and 
that the the accusation was that the company was, as you said, preying on the fears of of South Africans, um, and the directorate felt that the same story could have been conveyed without the traumatic detail and reenactment. So uh, they said the story is inherently of powerful. The choice to of course it could. Yeah, I mean the SAB had a car crash um, advert one Christmas where it showed people being flung around the inside of a car. It was awful. It was traumatic. I was triggered by that. Um, bad stuff happens, and it happens violently, and it happens badly, and it's awful. That's why it's demonstrated. I mean, the advertising, I mean, and they're nice people at the advertising regulatory board. They really are. But to even countenance two complaints and to treat two complaints seriously, if you get a hundred, yeah, if you get a thousand, absolutely. Two complaints? Seriously? I don't actually, I don't really agree with you on that. Um, because Excellent. Carry I on. Think- <laughs> I think, yes, you just go to me. I know you, Mr. Whitfield. Um, I, I think there isn't, you know, it's uh, complaining to the advertising uh, regulatory board, I wanted to say standards authority, which is what it used to be named that, um, is not something that leaps to mind um, for every South African who would have had the same reaction. Like, really, I, I, there was no warning. I wouldn't have wanted to expose my children to that. Thank you very much. So the point wasn't that the ad chose, the advertiser chose to to do that story. The point was the way they did it, the, the, the traumatic details, the triggering sound effects, etc. And I have to just say, I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one that that noticed this and it's got nothing to do with anything, but one of the complainants was a Mr. D. Og. Dog. It's gorgeous. Anyway, exactly. Mr. Og. It's a serious complaint. Sorry, it is Mr. D. Og is Mr. D. O-G-G, not Mr. D. Og, G-G. as in somebody taking the mickey. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's nominative to It's his real name. Um, exactly. I think yeah. If you if you if you, I didn't see the advert myself. Did you, Bruce? I, I didn't, but I'm, I'm just agi- I'm agitated on behalf of just the principle of censorship generally. But yeah, please carry on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let me let me. So well, I didn't see it, which is why I found reading it. I mean, I don't have my children are adults now, but I I I think I would have possibly also thought. Well, it's a bit much, you know. Obviously, it was screened before. What is the time uh, before nine o'clock nine or something? O'clock. Um, and uh, and yeah, so there was the, the, it was the sound effects and the tears and the everything else. Um, predictably, um, and, and you would agree, Dotshua put up a spirited defence. It says we deny that the advert will have an impact on those who see or hear it in the manner as alleged. We deny that this will affect the public given the context of that's the advert, also, the medium, sorry, the likely audience, also, product or service. Sorry, Wendy. Also garbage. They ran it because they wanted it to have an impact. They knew it would have an impact. That's a of garbage course. defense. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, they've said um, the positive outcome was highlighted that it did not, and it did, the ad did not instill fear in children or condone violence. And so, on that basis, they asked for the complaints to be dismissed. And the code actually the advertising code that is wasn't on their side because it states that adverts must not without justifiable reason play on fear and that adverts addressed to or likely to influence children should not contain any statement or visual visual presentation which might result in harming them mentally morally physically or emotionally few parents 
uh, would choose to share such a story with their children in such graphic detail, much less with the graphic sound effects of a gunshot and a yelping dog and would possibly not expose them to a news report about such a story. Um, and what that advert did essentially was bring all that drama and trauma into the viewer's home. Children are entitled to feel safe in the home, in their homes, the directorate said, but the commercial highlights a number of risks that a home can be invaded while a family sleeps, that children sleeping alone in their bedrooms might be targeted and that a beloved pet might be harmed for protecting its family. All things which parents would generally shield from their children. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I think I think Alda's discussion has sort of highlighted that they're going to be those that say, I think I think it's very hard to comment without actually seeing the advert, which you're now not going mm. to see. This ruling, incidentally, um, was handed was was published on the 14th of December. I think before the directorate or the, the ARB um, left the offices, whether they were be at, at home or in a building, and put, put the lights out. And 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 um, they actually, mm. they, this is the most recent ruling. They haven't issued another one um, this year. Um, and I went looking as I do periodically because my very interesting, serious story about um, a, an insurance uh, issue, um, I couldn't actually chat about. I have to do it next week because no, the look, I mean, company involved a, didn't keep their promise. Yeah. But but it's it's. I was thinking about it, Bruce, um, because fear does sell, and not just insurance policies. It sells. Mm. Uh, it works on our fears. They work of our cars being stolen, hijacked or involved in an accident, our homes being burnt down or flooded. And gosh, there's a lot of that going around. Um, the, you know, the, the rampant uh, crime levels in South Africa are, 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 are used, you know, to get us to buy products that, in the hope that we're going to be spared or in some way not as badly affected. I, and then I, I the fear mongering and all sorts of the, things. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the problem. I think this is very selective. It's been selected because somebody complained. Um, it's been selected because it triggered somebody. And I'm, and people have gone through traumatic situations at home. True. We all know people who've, who've endured home invasions and you don't want to be reminded of it. And particularly if you've got small kids, you really don't want them having to relive it in any way. But just as a, a, a better defense, I think, than Dotshua put up, because I just don't buy their defense at all, um, they wanted to trigger. They did want to get a reaction. Otherwise, why did you run that particular advert? You want a response. Um, the I went to somebody's home the other day and there were kids playing a dreadful game called Fortnite. And it's it, again, it's yes. not overtly graphic, but it is about eliminating other players from the game using weapons, an array of weapons, hacking weapons, chopping weapons, shooting weapons, exploding weapons, explosives. And the language between the kids was, kill me! I want to go, I'm finished! Now yes. kill me! You've got to finish yes. me! You've got to kill me! Uh, and, and, I, and that made me sick to my stomach, and I would like to complain to somebody about that. Uh, but I haven't got around to it. And it, it's just... <laughs> there is a sense that... You can be really good at your job and really good as a regulator. Uh, uh, when you are being selective and you can only, I suppose, act on what you, people are complaining about, maybe it sends a signal to the rest of an industry. Maybe we should start a campaign where we complain about everything that is slightly scary and see what the advertising regulator does about it. Um, <laughs> but it just does, it, it does, it, again, without having seen the ad, I don't like censorship. Um, and to ban something altogether that reflects a reality that South Africans endure regularly? Are we trying to sugarcoat? Well, there are lots of reasons to take out pet insurance. Yeah. I know. I'm with you. And my, my story is more compelling. I spent 
I'm not prepared to disclose how much because it's an outrageous amount of money on saving the life of the world's most gorgeous mm-hmm. dog. And then got the pet insurance afterwards and the little bug has not been sick since. You know, that's offensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to do it when they're young, otherwise it's too expensive. But you, you get insurance for, on your pet for all sorts of other reasons that, that they could have highlighted an advert and maybe they have in the past that don't involve something that can mm. potentially traumatize your audience. I don't know if it was entirely necessary. Um, but yes, the, 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 the Advertising Regulatory Board can't just of its own, you know, volition go and... Um, uh, decide itself that we're going to um, find this advert offensive or whatever. They can only act um, reactively. They got not proactively. They can only act on complaints. And even if it's one, but they whether it's one or fifty, they're going to apply the same um, reasoning. So yeah, I, I I don't think it's fair to say that they should only take these things seriously if there are a whole lot of complaints. I think there were a lot of people would have, those two people would have represented the feelings of quite a lot of South African viewers, I dare say. Mm. Okay. All right. We shall disagree. We're not even going to agree to disagree. We shall just disagree. Wendy Nola, thank you. Wendy Nola is our consumer ninja and she's fabulous at it. Of that, we don't disagree. Wendy Nola, consumer ninja on a... The Money Show. Shapeshifters. Uh, the Money Show is brought to you by ABSA CIB. And driving impactful action-led insights in collaboration with the ABSA Insights Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. That is what it is. Uh, this is The Money Show. And uh, as I mentioned, our... Uh, a shapeshifter that we arranged to speak to this evening, uh, Mr. Drisselman of Retailability, contacted us earlier today and said, terribly sorry, uh, but with all of the rain in KZN, my house has been flooded and I need to deal with it. And I think that is a perfectly legitimate reason to say, terribly sorry, I can't make it. Um, somebody who we've been remiss in inviting to the money show as a shapeshifter for many years, however, is somebody who you know well. Oh, you should know well. And if you don't know well, you will know well in the next 20 minutes or so because her name is Maya Fisher French. I met her many years ago when she was just Maya French. Then she married Mr. Fisher and she became Maya Fisher French or, as I prefer to call her, Maya Many Names. Tonight's shapeshifter. She's been awarded more personal finance awards in the last 15 years than any other person. And I think you must be neck and neck, if not surpassing a grand total, maybe a record that was set by Bruce Cameron many years ago in the world of personal finance. Maya, are you keeping tabs? Have you got a goal to beat the great Bruce Cameron? Um, Bruce, actually, no, I don't know how many uh, Bruce got. He, 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 Bruce Cameron got. He got a lot. Um, uh, yeah, so I have to be honest. I haven't. I haven't uh, kept tabs. Maybe I should give him a call and find out, and then I can. I can give. A, I can set myself a goal. <laughs> He may, he may make a comeback just to keep you at bay because it's eight when I last checked. Um, eight, uh, eight personal finance awards at the premier uh, uh, South African Journalism Awards, the Sunlum Financial Journalist of the Year Awards. And, and you've really ca- ca- carved a, a wonderful niche uh, for yourself and for your website, Maya, on money and your columns and your contributions to the world of personal finance. You often talk about your mother. When you when you talk about issues around personal finance, you you mention her finances and one gets the sense that she ran into a spot of bother at some point. And I wonder how that has been significant in shaping a deep desire for your own good financial control and the need to share the importance of this 
with other people too. You know, Bruce, I think we are shaped by the way we're raised and the experiences that we go through. And um, I do tell the story, and I think my mom's listening now. Bruce, <clears throat> she's my biggest fan. She watches everything and, and listens to everything I do. Um, but she, you know, my father passed away when I was 16, and we were suddenly um, discovered that we were, want a better word, bankrupt. Um, there was no money. My father had been living in significant amount of debt. And my mom had, you know, she had four children, but two were still at home. And she had been a stay-at-home mom for 17 years. And suddenly overnight, our lives changed completely. We lost everything. And she had to go out and find work. And I still remember she, she went out to employment agencies and she came back and she said, there's only one thing that I've got going for me. I don't smoke. <laughs> and in the end, she worked out. She, she'd raised a lot of children. She had done entertaining and she'd started a catering business. And, you know, she just literally pulled herself up, um, you know, and, 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 and us um, and, and worked really, really hard. And I look at that and I think that obviously set a lot of things in motion for me. I didn't ever want to be in a position where I wasn't financially independent. Um, I wanted to be, and I think that that drives a lot of what I write about for women, Bruce, um, to make sure that they're not, yeah. don't find themselves in a situation like my mother. I, I think it is alarmingly common that many women, particularly women, I doubt many men find themselves in this position, but it, it may happen. But many women find themselves in a position where either the relationship breaks down and they suddenly discover, well, you know, what I thought was stable is not stable and that's the finances. Or the partner dies and has been, you know, keeping secrets or not revealing the truth, however you want to couch it. But I think it's I think it's alarmingly column. You must get a column common. You must get a lot of uh, a lot of these sorts of stories as you relate your own. Absolutely. And in fact, it, it shocks me how frequently it still happens. You just would think by sort of 2024 now that, that we wouldn't be in this situation, that women would be more empowered around their finances, yet the stories just continue. Um, and and it, it, it is very concerning to me. And I think, Bruce, one of the reasons that we find women in these situations so frequently is because they land up with the children. Uh, I'm actually dealing with a case. A woman contacted me last week, you know, got divorced. Husband claims he's unemployed, not contributing to the children. You know, that's what happens. But the mother will do anything she can to make sure that yeah. she can still clothe. And again, I'm not saying all men are like this, but this is what I, you know, this is what we no. do see from time and to that's time. Common. Is that yeah. yeah, it is it is more common than it should be. And and men are able to walk away from their responsibilities and, and the mothers can't. So I think it is actually for me. When it comes to people, we say, oh, why do you talk about women and money? You know, it's, it's, it's gender neutral. It's not gender neutral when you have children because it's always the moms that land up, um, you know, raising the children. And that has a massive financial impact on them. And, and that's why I think there needs to continue to be a, a focus around this and education for women about, you know, about how to, to manage their finances. And, of course, it would be lovely if we saw more responsibility from men as well. <laughs> No, completely. Absolutely. How did that inform what you – how did your experience, your family experience at the age of 16, you lose your dad, and that's awful. It really is. You're going towards matric. It's a terror. I mean, there's no good time, but that's a particularly tough time, I think. Um, how did it inform the choices you made in terms of academia, uh, and, and how did you get to university? Did you have to go the scholarship route? Did you um, get, you know, I don't know, side hustle jobs? What happened? How did that work? Yes. So, I mean, we, you know, not only did I lose my father, we lost our home. 
So I actually wrote yeah. Matric living with my older sister, who at that stage had got married. Um, and, you know, so our lives were very much turned upside down. But I was one thing that actually, so, so we lost our home. There was a huge amount of debt that needed to be paid off. But there was one thing my dad had was this pension. And, you know, the Bruce, when we sit here talking about pension funds and all the rest of it, he had a defined benefit uh, pension, which meant that my mom received a pension fund. Um, and because we were still minor children, we received, uh, there was a certain amount for us as well. And that was enough to help my mom get me to university. Um, so I'm, I'm really, you know, people talk about cashing in their pensions and all these things. You know, when, 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 when you need that pension for real things like, you know, sending a child to, to your, you know, there's Life. a death in the family and you need to send your child to, to be educated. So that is how, how I managed to get into, into university. But Bruce, at that stage, I, uh, I wasn't at all looking at, at finance. I was going to go into law. I wanted to be a lawyer. And, um, but when my, when I started at university, I had had some good advice, I think, from, from a family friend who said, don't study just law, go and do a general BA so that you experience a little bit, learn, you know, develop your mind before going on to do your LLB. And I um, discovered economics and I fell in love with economics and my whole trajectory changed after that. Uh, and, and I landed up not wanting to do law, but, um, you know, started going into, into more into the finance world. Uh, and you worked at BJM, if memory serves. I think you were in stockbroking definitely when I first met you. A while back. We're not dating, the, the, we're not putting dates on stuff because that just makes us feel old. But I think you were a BJM, weren't you? I was. In fact, my first job was Investec Private Bank. Um, and then uh-huh. I, I worked at, uh, and just Bruce, just this is a very interesting story. You know, people come and they say to you, you know, when you're 18 years old, what do you just, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Well, I finished studying and I had two job offers. Uh, so I had, I had a, a degree in English and economics, very strange combination. And I had two job offers. One was in advertising and one was the, with investing private bank. I knew nothing about either of them, but somewhere along the line, I'd heard there was a lot of drugs in advertising. So I decided to say no to drugs and say yes to, <laughs> to banking. <laughs> On that little... Because, of course, there are no, there are no drugs in banking, yes. Well, I, I can tell you that, yeah, that I discovered that, that my knowledge was around these subjects was not actually that accurate once I got into it. But, I mean, Bruce, on that basis, an entire career is built. <laughs> Those are the yes, random exactly that you make. So, yeah. Were, it was a good call. It was a good gym. call. I, I think it was a good call. Uh, we're talking, yeah, I could be, I could be an advertising exec. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I think it was a good call. Exactly, but you you would have t- terrible personal habits. My official French is our guest this evening. You know her as the site holder, um, the financial uh, reporter, the financial journalist, the person who to whom many people take their financial worries, and she seeks to help them resolve those financial worries in columns, on stages everywhere. She is uh, carved a really strong position for herself as South Africa's foremost personal finance journalist, and her name is Maya Fisher-French. She is the owner of Maya on Money. We'll talk about that transition to media. For some Somebody had made so many good decisions early on. Making a decision to go into media was not the most brilliant economic decision. You would think for a degree, somebody with a degree in economics and English. She's using the English at least and many of her finance lessons too, no doubt. But more with Maya in a moment. The Money Show. Shapeshifters. 
Maya Fisher-French with us this evening. Wonderful to have her with us. Did you say BJM Long? What, what was the catalyst that got you out of a proper job and into media? <laughs> so I was working at BJM. I, I think there were a couple of, of triggers there. One of them was that I, I fell pregnant with my, my eldest child. Um, and it was quite, you know, it was quite a, a hectic, long sort of day. You know, you'd sort of leave at seven at night. And um, I, 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 you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue to do that now that I was becoming a mom. But Bruce had also been kind of growing, this discontent had been growing inside me um, because it was at the time of the dot-com bubble. Um, so I, I left BGM in March 2020, uh, not 20, uh, 2000, March 2000. And um, it was all at that time when, there was this, so I was at, at that stage working at BJM. I was um, had, had helped them set up their trading desk, and we were dealing with a lot of um, people, just you know, traders, uh, individuals, people. Um, but there was this avarice that was building. This sort of, and I remember so clearly a woman phoning me and saying, "I have my children's school fees for January, and we're talking November, um, and I want to double my money. Which share should I put it in?" And I was becoming more and more. Cons- yeah, yeah. So, you know, people forget what that dot-com bubble was like. <laughs> and everything, you know, you, you could list a kitchen sink, you know. Everything was being listed. And I just was becoming uncomfortable with it. There was just stuff that wasn't resonating with me. I, I really believed in longer-term investing. I believed in, in different things. Um, and I also sort of wanted to be in a position where I wasn't tied to advice. So in other words, you know, and I think this is always something, you you know, you wanted to be able to say what you wanted to say without worrying whether or not you were going to get a commission from it or be paid for it. Or so, so there was a lot of, things that were obviously bubbling underneath for me so so when when I when I was had my son I thought it was time to perhaps leave uh leave the world of of um stockbroking and I was offered a very large check I might add to go back um but I yeah I I just it just wasn't a right fit for me anymore and then there were a few other little things that I did in, in between but then I heard about, and I started actually writing some columns for MoneyWeb, um, and just a few. And I think Bruce, that's where part of where you and I sort of also connected. And um, I then um, was approached. Uh, well, I heard about this newspaper coming to South Africa called This Day, and I uh, happened this to know. Week, uh, I think it was called because it, it lasted <laughs> a moment in time. <laughs> Shame. Yes, well, this day you know, came to I South was. Africa. Again, lucky break. I mean, I happened to know the consultant, or John did, you, you, you know my husband well. He knew the consultant who, was, who had brought the, um, the stage to South Africa, a Nigerian newspaper. And I phoned and I said, you know, I'm interested. I, I've been running a few columns for MoneyWeb. I think this is an angle I would love to go. And they, he said, oh, come pop in. And I popped in in my jeans and a T-shirt thinking I was just going to meet him. It was on a Saturday or something. And John Madison was sitting there. He was the managing editor of this day. Um, and he interviewed me and hired me on the spot. So um, that was my my start. And I, I do have to say it's a cliche, but I found my calling. I, that, that was for me when I entered that newsroom and I started writing um, about, and I was a business writer, a business, a business journalist primarily then. I started to move into personal finance, but I just found this is what I wanted to do. Okay. So that explains that explains the decision. Um, my own money. When did that start? Because you you spent some time sort of working for others, and then at some point you went, actually, I can do this for myself. And you did the incredibly courageous thing of launching a website. Uh, and it is courageous because it's a very crowded space. The world of information. We 
you know, Bruce, it's, it, what's interesting is, you know, and I say that was so lucky with this day because when this day closed a year later um, and we were all unpaid, <laughs> I, you know, I had had contacts with so many brilliant journalists who had worked there. So so the, the move into freelance at that stage was actually quite you know, wasn't such a problem for me because I had a lot of contacts. And I started then uh, writing for Mail and Guardian. I wrote for Maverick, which is now Daily Maverick. And I started being able to write for, for quite a lot of publications um, because of the networks that I had developed. But then what I actually, had, and you know, this, my own money was a complete accident um, because what I realized, I was writing for so many publications at that point, there was no single place for me to find all my articles. And sometimes I wanted to refer back to them and that. So I started this little website uh, where I would post all my articles so that I could find them when I wanted to, you see. Um, and and next thing is that the website became bigger and grew and uh, you know it, it, it just it was almost an accident uh, rather than than a a plan um and and also bruce i i think i was at that point you know i was i had been very much on business in fact the first uh, journalist award i won was was best newcomer writing for maverick uh, on first rand it was it was a piece i'd written on first rand so that was had actually really been my original sort of um area and there was just such a demand for personal finance journalism a massive demand and that is where i just started to grow and grow and grow into that space um and as i said you know i'd, I'd started this website people started reading the website and you know people would, like bruce whitfield would call me onto the radio station um you know that enca asked me to do a show for them and it just grew over time um so i can't say it was a grand plan when i decided to go and launch my money but it probably was a very smart decision to go freelance at that point um yeah serendipitous i i would guess the the website it does it live up to your ethos of ensuring your own financial stability because so often you know these websites you can do subscriber models and that's very very hard to get people to pay for content um you need a huge balance sheet behind you on that one you rely on advertising income you rely on the income that comes from you uh, presenting and performing in front of audiences. Um, have you been able to carve that, achieve the goal of, uh, of financial independence through working for yourself in this particular space? Yes, but not through the website. The website, I don't even have advertising on it. Um, so it's not through the website, but it is through the brand. Um, I do write. I write for, for City Press. I, ha I do, you know, really big projects as well. I do speaking work. Um, so there's a variety of, of ways of, yeah, of income. Um, so, so I think that is it. It is, I think for me, my website, as I was saying to somebody actually earlier this week, I said, it's more my calling card. Um, it's more my marketing, you know, platform. People go there, they say, oh, wow, she really knows what she's talking about. Let's get her in. Let's ask her to come speak. Let's, let's do a podcast with her because she knows what she's talking about. So I think for me, my website's not, I've, I, you know, to try and monetize a website, as you know, Bruce, it's, it's, it's massively challenging. Hard. Um, so I think yeah. for me, it's it's not that I don't focus on monetization of the website so much as, as that is the place for people to find me. Yeah, look, it's a, you need a shop window and it's a, it's a very, very, a very, very attractive shop window as well. What what hurts you? What upsets you? What what really when you when you look at the world of money and the way in which people interact with you about money and the levels of desperation that many people find themselves in, what has been the most jarring tale that you can recall at short notice? Oh goodness. 
look, the scams, you know, I think when people are scammed, I get, uh, I just, it just breaks my heart. I had a woman, you know, emailing me this week um, saying to me that she was a victim of this, uh, the, the African um, United Stock, United African Stockville. And she said, Maya, that I gave them 6,000 Rand, which was my children's school fees. I cannot pay my children's school fees now. Can you help me? Mm. And you can't help someone, you know, you, you can't, there's nothing you can do when someone's been scammed. And I mean, one of the big roles that I play, and that's very much, it's, it's the, a bulk of my day is often spent actually helping people solve problems, but I can only solve them if they've been working with a company that exists. You know, then I do use my media contacts to make sure the bank sorts yeah, them out absolutely. or the insurance company and those sorts of things. But I certainly can't help somebody who's been scammed. And I see that happening so, so frequently. And, and the other thing that really bothers me as well, is, is debt, you know, seeing people get into debt. And I I get very angry with people who say, oh, well, people are stupid. They should know what they're doing. I spend time understanding those people's stories. Um, I write about those people's stories. I interview those people. And, and you know, life is hard. When your mother, a good example is somebody who I've just, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with over the last year for Money Makeover. You know, you're 24 years old. Your mother's killed in a car accident. And overnight, you're responsible for two, your two younger siblings and yeah. putting them through school. You know, don't tell me, you know, don't sit on your, your high horse and say people are stupid for taking on debt. So I think I have a very strong... <laughs> social conscience um and i think that yes. i think bruce that drives me every single day and in the informed from your own experience maya fisher french thank you very much indeed you've learned a little bit more about